The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Good morning, it's Tuesday 26th of September. On the programme this morning, Ain Two leader and chair of the Safer Meath campaign, Pather Tobin, has challenged the government to start to provide a guard the force capable of fighting the spike in violent crime. He made his comments ahead of a public meeting in Meath last night on the increase in crime and antisocial behaviour. Government's two financial ministers made a budget presentation to coalition party leaders yesterday evening. Michael McGrath and Pascal Donoghue will be meeting colleagues throughout the week as they continue to negotiate Budget 2024. The Simon Communities of Ireland says the country needs to look at the big picture when it comes to homelessness. To kick off Simon Week, the charity is holding a number of events throughout the country. We'll be joined by Executive Director Wayne Stanley. And thousands of health and community workers are going on strike next month. The Irish Congress of Trade Unions, which represents those employed in community and voluntary sectors, largely funded by the HSE, says the indefinite strike action will begin Tuesday, October the 17th. These stories and more on the programme. The Michael Reed Show with Alan Cantwell till 11. If you want to contact us, WhatsApp 086-1800 or you can email michael at lmfm.ie. Let's get underway this morning. The Ainthu leader and chair of the Safer Meath campaign, Pather Dobin, as he heard, has challenged the government to start to provide a guard the force capable of fighting the spike of violent crime. Those comments were made ahead of a public meeting in Meath last night. Not the first one that the deputy has organised and held throughout the region. We'll be talking to the deputy uh, in a few moments. But first, I want to talk to Stephen Dillon. He's the owner of the Cut Above Hairdressers on Flower Hill and Navan. And I want to speak to him about his own experience in antisocial behaviour, the rise of crime, and what he has witnessed in his own business. And he has been in business for two decades now now he joins us on the line Stephen good morning thanks for taking our call how bad are things from your perspective in Navin hi Alan and thanks for having us on um, yeah no it's got quite bad it's getting worse and worse as the years go on it, it, like we are in a part of Navin called Flower Hill and it seems to be probably one of the worst affected areas around the town the council always kind of seem to leave this end of town and concentrate more on the city or in the town centre, should I say. So what's, um, what's happened in, in the two decades? Because I remember, Navin, oh, around about 25 years ago, I would have um, spent quite a bit of time down there, and it was a nice, prosperous town at the time, albeit things were starting to get built up around it. So where did it all go badly wrong? Well, I think a lot of it comes down to drugs and a lot, and, now, and to, not to sugarcoat it, I think a lot of it comes down to a lot of bad parenting and parents not being held accountable for what their kids do. It's a lot of younger kids that are that are causing a lot of this disruption around the town. It's easy to point the finger, though, at parents and accuse them of having feral kids. I mean, that's not the only reason that things tend to go south. I mean, there are numerous factors which uh, feed into this. I mean, it's not fair just to hold parents accountable for it. I know that, but like, if you don't have funding coming from the government to fund things around the town for younger people to get involved with, such as youth clubs or, you know, certain infrastructures to keep those kids basically occupied and get them to their full potential in life rather than just letting them run their own 
riots around the town and making life miserable and disruptive for other people going about their everyday business. Now, you experienced it firsthand. You had a break in there, as I understand that your mother was also um, involved in yeah. that in terms of she was the victim of it. Yeah, well, approximately about three months ago, and this will just highlight how understaffed the guards are in the town, but there was a, a robbery. Firstly, it started in the Black Castle area in a, a, a chemist up there. Then it moved on down the road where they had already rang the guards, and it moved on to a public house further on down the road where they rang the guards. And then they robbed us, and then they robbed the local shop. They rang the guards, and then they came to us. They basically robbed us uh, and assaulted my mother. We rang the guards. Then they left here, went down to a pub down the road, robbed us, is in the off license. They rang the guards, and the guards didn't catch them until they got to the far end of the bottom of the hill where they robbed another shop and basically smashed the window down below. And presumably, like, you, how, you, there was. How, how can, it, it, How can four people go from one end of town to almost a kilometre away? Okay, my, my next question, albeit it was three months ago, have these individuals appeared in court yet? Well, to be honest, a guard rang me and asked, did we want to press charges? And we were actually nervous of pressing charges because of what they might do to the building or come back and do to one of my staff members. So I couldn't take the risk in it. And as I said last night as well, it would actually cost me money to press charges against these people. Whereas these people more than likely would get uh, free legal aid to fight their corner and more than likely come out the better of it. Whilst most people will understand your position and the fear that perhaps you uh, may have in the trepidation going to court, as long as people sit on their hands and do nothing and don't face down these individuals, it will continue to happen. Uh, I, I totally agree with you, but at the end of the day, we are a small business. We're barely keeping our head above water. VAT rates are after increasing. We have any amount of problems and stopping us from actually trying to make a living. I'm trying to employ people here and I don't need to put more roadblocks basically in front of me by getting a window smashed by one of these individuals by pressing charges against them. That's the fear we're living in. What about the prevalence of open-air drug dealing? Is there much of that going on in Navin? Because we hear so many stories, particularly in rural parts of Ireland. It's a, but it's not just an Avon problem. That that's a that's a, a, a national problem. It's in villages. It's in towns. It's in cities. It's everywhere. And basically, like you know, th- this problem isn't going to go away unless, like, as Father said last night, we don't have any addiction beds in the hospital. Like uh, mental health, um, mental health beds are being cut. We ha- I don't even think we have any in Avon anymore. Like. Those things are needed if you want to try and get somebody who wants to come off drugs or, into, or off an addiction. Like, all of those facilities need to be here, and we don't have them, and we're constantly being caught in this county. And presumably you've had conversations privately with Garthi, not just in Navan, but around the region. What are they saying to you? Well, basically, you know, I can't, you can't really blame the guards that are there either. They're not getting paid enough for what they do. There isn't enough of them. They're like they don't. Uh, they obviously have no confidence in Drew Harris at the minute. Um, following the votes that they had last week, uh, Minister McEntee, I don't know. Like to me, she needs to step up to the plate and perform a bit better than what she already is. Going but back the next to election, will kind of show what will happen there anyway, because the the true feeling of the people will come out. Okay, let's go back just to your own business, Stephen, and the consequences of what has happened to you as a result of that break-in. What measures have you had to take? Well, 
like we're in business here over 20 years and I've never once had to lock the door. Our door is constantly locked now. I can't, we've, we've gone to an appointment basis where I don't do walk-ins anymore. People come to, a, come to our door, ring the doorbell and we let them in. We don't, we don't leave the door open for fear that someone would just come in, either grab the till, take somebody's handbag, rob products, and we just, we just thought the precaution of closing the door is what we had to do. We also installed CCTV. I never had CCTV up until about five, six years ago. Stephen, stay with us and feel free to jump in. I want to bring in uh, Pather Tobin, uh, who was chairing that particular meeting last night. Pather, I presume that was just um, a snapshot of so many other stories that you listened to, which were all more or less the same last night. Yeah, I want to give credit to Stephen, first of all, for being brave enough to speak last night and for coming on to, to your own uh, radio show today. And I would ask the people of, of Navin to support him uh, in any way they can, business-wise, uh, over the coming months. Um, you know, Stephen's story is uh, was repeated by a, a large number of people last night. And one of the really scary things that have, you know, that, that came last night to four was the amount of people who are suffering assaults or robberies or thefts but are now too afraid to actually proceed with the prosecution uh, of these individuals. And it is a very hard decision for a business or a family to make whether they, they, they go down the route of, pro- route of prosecution. Another woman uh, who works in retail who you know, was threatened with sexual assault if she went to the Gardaí uh, in relation to, to ro- robbery was afraid that if she went down the route of prosecution that her own sons would be targeted. Um, so we're living in a county at the moment where people are significantly living in fear, where the criminals who are involved in this feel that they have immunity from any sort of action. They feel that there's no consequence at all for the actions that they're taking uh, on families, and they feel they can get away with it. And, you know, there's, there's, uh, we, we've gone through a tipping point, I believe, in Meath. Uh, previously, we, we've had, had difficulties with crime and antisocial behaviour, but there was a darkness to the story last night. A, a, a man from Trim told the story of, of people on the street uh, you know, threatening to, to rape uh, his wife uh, in the house, uh, etc. Really, really dark, very violent, very vicious types of assaults uh, happening. Uh, and at a time, we're also really, really suffering in, for the lack of Gardaí. Uh, I know uh, that, for example, from Enfield to Oldcastle to Knobber, the whole west uh, part of County Meads, on a given Saturday, there now can be only six Gardaí on duty. You know, two cars with two Gardaí each, and uh, one individual in, in Trim and one individual in, in the Kell station. And, you know, these Gardaí don't have any backup at all. This, the nearest Garda for backup could be 40 minutes away. Um, it's just an incredible situation. Like, Meads currently has one Garda for every 703 people. The average is one Garda for every 371 Waterford has twice the amount of Gardaí per capita that we have in Meath. We have an enormous crisis happening here. It's not getting the attention uh, from the government or from uh, Drew Harris that it needs. And unless it changes, we're going to see, you know, this culture, this culture of violence, this threatening behaviour increase in the next number of years. And, and, you know, at the the, the public meeting last night, we decided we have had enough. We're going to build... um, a community campaign in the same way that we built the hospital campaign that will put pressure, that will put feet on the street if necessary, will put pressure on the minister and the government 
to make sure that Mead gets what it's entitled to in terms of safety. There's okay. no doubt in my mind that there's a correlation between the lack of guardian in this county and a significant spike in the level of crime. Okay, the, the more I hear these stories, Pather, and it's not just in County Mead, it's across the country, this is a country and a society that's descending into lawlessness. Is that a fair assessment? I would say, unfortunately, and, and I'm not given to, to, to hyperbole, I would say that there's a level of lawlessness happening on the towns, in the streets, in the market squares uh, of our towns and villages at the moment. And the key driver of that was the lack of consequence. We were talking about people, young people, unfortunately, a very small minority of young people, not representative of young people in general, but a, a small cohort who have multiple previous convictions, can have 30 or 40 previous convictions and never see jail time. A revolving door where judges simply turn the individual back and put them onto the street, where that individual is robbing and is threatening and assaulting individuals within days of being in court uh, previously. And, uh, and, and a, a small cohort, uh, and I've spoken to Gardy on this, and they've said if they had the ability to put people away within 24 hours, they could significantly make a dent on the level of crime and antisocial behaviour uh, that's happening in Meath. Um, but the, the, the two weaknesses we have is the lack of guardy and the lack of consequence uh, for these thugs who are involved in this persistent crime. Why, therefore, given that it's the minister's bailiwick, that we have such a deficit of boots on the ground, as it were? We don't have enough guardy. One would think it was politically expedient and prudent from her perspective to ensure that there was a belt and braces approach towards security, justice and guardy uh, in her own back garden. Well, I, one of the reasons why Mead is so poorly invested in in terms of Gardaí, and not just in terms of Gardaí, but as Stephen there we lost, said earlier, we lost our 24-hour unit, psychiatric unit. We don't have uh, beds, um, residential rehabilitation beds for young people trying to get off drugs in this county. The reason why we have so little investment for capita is because our population has really, really increased fast uh, in the last 20 years, but the investment has stalled. It hasn't kept up with that population increase. So when my father was young, there was 100,000 people living in the county. When I was young, there was 160,000 people living in, in Mead. And now there's a quarter of a million people living in, in, in the county. But the investment hasn't kept up. I, I don't want to make it this uh, too political, but I will say I don't believe that Helen McEntee is doing her job. I think Helen McEntee is distracted by, you know, uh, the culture wars and issues that concern the, the, the media and political bubble. But she's forgetting about the bread and butter stuff that are affecting her community. Or maybe, or just maybe, Pather, she doesn't have the resources that she would want to put in to her own back garden, that she is so stretched, that she's stretched to try and get extra finance, to put more boots on the ground. She got 10 million for overtime to try and deal with a problem in the north inner city, dealing uh, with uh, Garda overtime and to try and quell that particular... She's putting fires out everywhere. Well, I will say this. Every year that Helen McEntee has been Minister for Justice, the number of Gardaí in this country have fallen, even though the population has radically increased. You have hundreds of Gardaí now being attacked on the streets uh, every year. You have hundreds of Gardaí resigning and uh, retiring every year. And in Templemore, there's been a collapse in the number of Gardaí looking to become Gardaí. And, and Alan, everybody knows that if you want to employ people, what you have to do is have a competitive package in terms of salary, terms and conditions. And obviously what's happening now is young people who are deciding on careers do not see the Gardaí as an attractive role, partly because of the terms and conditions and partly because of the increased danger in that sector 
uh, that's happening at the moment. So what Helen needs to do is she needs to convince young people that actually there's a decent living to be made out of um, being a Garda, but secondly, that she'll have the Garda's back. So like we in Aintu, for example, brought about a bill which would see a mandatory uh, custodial sentence for anybody that injures a Garda. If you bite a Garda, if you, if you assault a Garda, if you ram a Garda car and a, and a Garda is injured, you should see jail time. And the fact that that's not the case means that these thugs feel safe in actually attacking Gardaí at this stage. Do you also, though, accept, Padder, that there's a fear amongst rank-and-file Gardaí not perhaps to try and push the limits, albeit they would probably be quite within their rights to do so for fear of GSOC breathing down their neck? Well, I will say there's there's a significant level of red tape and bureaucracy at the moment. So I've spoken to Gardaí who told me that um, right now, um, for example, in Dublin, when they answered the phone in a Garda station, there could be 500 phone calls actually in the call waiting system there. Um, and yet the, their system means that they have to get to every single one of those individuals and call out to them. They can't use their own experience or their own cop-on to decide which calls are more serious. So they're actually calling out to calls 24 hours, 48 hours later, when obviously the issue has gone away, when, 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 when the emergency has disappeared. And yet they have to fulfill that because of, of red tape. Um, there's, there's no doubt in my mind as, as well that when GSOC investigates uh, what happens to a Garda, they investigate the individual Garda, but they don't investigate the management structures that have led to the problem. So if a Garda is late in, in replying to a number of calls, they're not lo- looking at why that particular Garda was in the place where he was late in answering those calls. And actually... We do need GSOC and we do need the robust GSOC to keep an eye and make sure that Gardaí are doing their job properly. But we don't seem to have okay. anybody investigating the management or the senior management in terms of, of their roles and responsibilities. Great stuff. Pather, we've got to leave there. But before I do, Stephen, can you just uh, jump in there, having listened to Pather and the conversation, are you any way optimistic for the future? Well, to be honest, you have to start somewhere, uh, Alan. And I think I think Pather has made made the move of at least putting us into transition that we can actually make and form a rally to try and force Helen McEntee's hand to do something okay. about the antisocial behaviour and the amount of guards that she's supplying to the county. Okay, we leave it there, so Stephen Dillon. I, I thank him for doing that and basically anybody who can help or come on board in the future to help combat the crime situation within the county we much appreciate. Stephen Dillon, owner of the Cut Above Hairdresser on Flower Hill and Avon and Ian Thu, uh, party Leader Pada Tobin, thank you for joining us. Michael Reed on LMFM. Welcome back to the programme. The government's two financial ministers made a budget presentation to coalition party leaders yesterday evening. Michael McGran, Pascal Donoghue will be meeting colleagues throughout the week as they continue to negotiate budget 2024. Our political correspondent, Sean Defoe, joins us with more on this this morning. Uh, morning, Sean. Thanks for taking the call. I suppose we're at a point now where it's all about the horse trading. Every department is looking for an extra slice of the cake that seems to be getting smaller. Yeah, that's it. I mean, we're exactly two weeks out now from budget 2024 and a lot of the negotiations will have gone on over the summer. A lot of the sort of broad strokes will be in place, but now we get into those nitty-gritty details. So there might be agreement that there will be, for example, more subsidies to childcare in the budget, but Roger O'Gorman saying this morning that isn't finalised yet and we just know how much it will be and will it be the same 25% reduction in cost that we saw last year that he had promised for this year. He, he can't quite guarantee it. So that's the, the space we're in. We know it'll be 
a 6.4 billion euro budget package overall on top of the spending of last year and then also there will be a separate cost of living package of a number. We don't know how much it will be last year. It ran to close to 4 billion. It's definitely going to be smaller than that this year, maybe somewhere in the 2 to 3 billion euro uh, pack, uh, region, if you like. And that's where the likes of your energy supports, your one-off targeted, maybe your, your your bumper October payment of the social welfare rates, all of that will come in. So this is the, the nitty-gritty detail they're starting to get into. Okay. Um, it, it strikes me there may be a flying the ointment, and that is the Health Minister, Stephen Donnelly. When we consider by the end of this year, we may see an overrun in his department by about a billion. That hole has to be plugged. He's also looking for more money Pascal Donoghue is not happy with the situation, but potentially that could change the dynamics, the financial dynamics of the budget and who gets what, surely. Absolutely. Yesterday there was a meeting of the Cabinet Subcommittee on Health to discuss that very thing because it is a, a huge overrun in the Department of Health. As you say, almost a billion euro, a few different things being blamed for that sort of inflation is tagged as one of them and an increase or a higher than level service demand as well with more people presenting uh, for more things and so that the minister and the health service is trying to deal with that but at the same time the HSC and the health service have had perennial overruns there has been a, a budget overrun for, for quite a few years which is this year it is particularly high and that what ministers are now looking at is well look how do we plug this so that we're not coming back every single budget looking to address overruns in the Department of Health and not only does it squeeze Stephen Donnelly's room for doing extra things if you look at maybe for, for example uh, the first free IVF in the country the treatment started yesterday he's looking to expand that perhaps in the next budget uh, expand out the provision of free medical cards, as he's done in a number of, of budgets towards his goal of universal health care. Those are the things that could get squeezed now. Where it's just to, to, to patch up the hole. And one of the difficulties that health always has is there's the cost of standing still. There is a cost that could run to the low hundreds of millions of euro of just doing everything you did this year. Next year gets more expensive. And also it branches out into other uh, into other departments. If health is overrunning by a billion euro, that's no small amount of plug and could curtail spending in other areas. So it's sort of a tricky one to manage, one that other ministers are not exactly best pleased about when they think that their pet project might not get the go-ahead because of overruns in health. Do you get the sense there's collective agreement amongst the coalition leaders around doing something for landlords? It didn't happen last year. They are fleeing at a rate of knots out of the particular sector. So one would presume something will happen. Well, there is a general agreement that something does need to be done in order to sort of stem that tide of the smaller landlords leaving the market. How that's actually done, I don't think is entirely finally agreed. And when it comes to the housing side of it, what they seem to be talking about is some sort of a tax incentive that your rental income would be taxed differently to other income. And that's something the Department of Finance has pushed back on in the past and is quite reluctant about making the argument that you know, why should a, a passive income for somebody be taxed less or be, be more tax uh, incentivized than the earned income of another worker who doesn't, uh, you know, doesn't earn as much or isn't in the sort of wealth bracket that might allow you to be a landlord? So I, I don't think it is finalized. There was certainly in the last budget, this is what Minister O'Brien was, was pushing for as well and pushing for more tax incentives, and it didn't happen. While there is a, a you know, a broader incentive, something needs to be done with landlords, but the how 
is not quite landed on and agreed. Now, just looking, I suppose, at the budget in the round and the warnings that have been signalled by many think tanks, European uh, think tanks over the past number of months, broadly, do you feel that it will probably get it there or thereabouts, keeping that delicate balance that's required in order to, to give us what we need, which is a stable economy going through what could be potentially a difficult period for us? Yeah, and it's interesting, especially when you hear warnings yesterday that house prices have gone beyond the sort of late Celtic Tiger figures. And we all know what happened after the, the late Celtic Tiger. We all know how uncertain the global economy looks for the next 18 months with everything going on. And when you think that you know, the Central Bank, the Irish Fiscal Advisory Council, the ESRI, have all cautioned the government to, to be a bit more careful than they are being at the moment uh, with warnings that the, could, the mistakes of the past could be repeated. It, it strikes you as kind of astonishing that the government seems to be ignoring all of that. And it's something I put to Taoiseach Leo Varadkar last week in an interview where I said, look, why do you have so many financial experts giving you advice if you're not going to fully listen to them? And what he said is that, yes, look, there is, this budget probably is going to mean that inflation will stay higher for longer, that they're putting in that bit of extra cash beyond what they usually would or what they would expect to put in. But at the same time, he thinks that is the right thing to do because, look, a lot of people have been struggling this year. If they have got pay rises, it might match the rate of inflation. And while the, in general, notionally, salaries are going up, the actual earned income people have at the end of the month has been going down because of the cost of living pressures. And he said that's where he would rather put his money, even if it does mean that inflation is going to stay a little higher for longer, sort of walking against really the um, what the central banks have been trying to do in just really putting a clampers on the economy to get inflation down, yet politicians, I suppose, have to, to walk that tight walk of doing that while also ma- making sure people aren't suffering too much not to vote for them. A couple of things I just want to cover you with you, Sean, before we let you go. First off, are we facing or is the government facing into a winter of discontent when you consider what is happening in industrial relations? We have had the nurses... Uh, pretty much banging a drum for a long time over waiting lists and beds. We have the childcare providers on the streets for three days. That's going to escalate if uh, Roderick O'Gorman does not uh, concede to their demands. We've also seen healthcare workers talking about an indefinite strike come October. Difficult period ahead for the government? Yeah, really difficult to manage all that. No coincidence that it is all coming in the run into the budget when all of these figures have been decided and people are putting those pressure points on. That doesn't mean they're any less worthy. But, for example, you know, the childcare providers saying fine to, you know, reducing the cost and everything, but at the same time, the fees that they are being paid, that they are capped at, are not enough, that the pay in the sector isn't enough. The Section 39 workers you mentioned as well in areas that, like Enable Ireland who do uh, you know, fantastic work for for people uh, with disabilities across the country. So it, it's going to be a very, very difficult one for them to square over the next while that they're going to have to try and get right in the budget. And yet at the same time, as we get whenever we have any sort of a industrial relations dispute, the government can't just open the pocketbook sort of willy-nilly. The fear is then you would have, I don't know, the teachers or the guards or whoever else out um, looking for looking for more money at the moment. While that might be justified on an, each on an individual basis, you can make an argument that everybody in the country should be getting a pay rise just to deal with the inflation that we're dealing with. The reality is at the end of the day, they have to pay for it. 
and that public sector pay deal and pay talks that they're they're going through also have to come out of the budget arithmetic. So it is yeah, it could be a very tricky few months. And the Taoiseach, of course, waking up with another headache this morning following the announcement that uh, former Justice Minister Charlie Flanagan is not going to stand in the le- next general election. No great surprise there. But given that in the context of the number of other individuals who have left the stage, it is tricky, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, Charlie Flanagan, former Justice Minister, former Foreign Affairs Minister, well-respected in Fine Gael, as, as he put in his resignation late letter uh, between him and his father, Oliver J. Flanagan, they had, I think, more than 80 years of service. Uh, Charlie Flanagan having won, I think, 13 elections, 13 general elections and between him and his father, uh, more than 20, 23 elections over their time. So a huge uh, legacy for Fine really, in Misha Nofoli, now being split into two constituencies, is going to be a huge headache for them to try and keep them. And that's seven now. That's about one in five sitting Fine Gael TDs who are not going to contest the next general election and there are a couple more you would look at and wonder are they definitely going to go maybe Paul Kyo and Wexford Michael Ring and Mayo probably more likely to go now that there's an extra seat there but you know if you, you kind of wonder and the Taoiseach has said he's not 100% sure would it end here uh, Any for any party having a turnover of 20% before you even go to the polls and, and we see the public vote and maybe turf some people out and bring new people in is a really really difficult challenge in whatever way now Fine Gael looks at the next election after it, it is going to be quite a different party because you lose a lot of that experience, you turn it over to maybe younger people in those constituencies who aren't as tried and tested and that just brings a, a completely different dimension to a party. There are people who maybe didn't necessarily vote for Leo Varadkar as leader, weren't involved uh, in his time at Cabinet or have a certain loyalty to him and that just changes the, the dynamic too. So yeah, it's going to be a headache. The Taoiseach has said he thinks that that seat can be retained, you know, pointing to, to other areas in the past where they've lost someone very experienced and managed to hold on to the seat but it is certainly going to be a challenge. Sean, the podcast, before I let you go, I'm not going to ask you what's coming up this week. We'll keep that a secret for now but how's it going in general? Yeah, good. Yeah, closely guarded secret obviously this week uh, which definitely doesn't mean I haven't decided what we're doing. Uh, yes, we're also very, very unprepared but uh, no, look, very good. Listenership is up. We've been nominated for an Imro Award uh, and we had some really good episodes last week that are worth people listening actually. One with uh, live from New York in the UN with Eamon Ryan uh, who uh, quite an interesting character for all the stick that he gets. Uh, I would encourage people to go back and listen to it because he has a, a lot of thoughts on where we're going as a country, when the next election should be, and what we need to do globally to sort of get things back on track from a climate point of view, not just uh, not just in Ireland. So yeah, the Let Me Explain podcast available now wherever you get your podcasts, as they all say. John DeVoe, political correspondent. Thank you for joining us. Michael Reed on LMFM. Don't forget, if you want to text us, you can WhatsApp 086-1800-658 or email michael at lmfm.ie. The Simon Communities of Ireland says the country needs to look at the big picture when it comes to homelessness. To kick off Simon Week yesterday, the charity held a conference in Dublin with keynote speaker Professor Greg Colburn. Professor Colburn believes there are micro-events in people's lives which can lead to homelessness, like family breakups or addiction. And they are intensified by the society they are living in. Executive Director Wayne Stanley of the Simon Communities joins us this morning. Morning, Wayne. Thanks for taking our call. I think it's important, first of all, to point out that homelessness is not confined to one social strata. It's across the spectrum in this country. Anybody can be affected or touched by it. That's fair to say, isn't it? Uh, it's it's fair to say that the, um, the housing crisis and the, anyone can have a, a crisis uh, and that crisis can lead to homelessness. That's absolutely true. What we do find, though, in the main is that it's people who are on uh, lower incomes, 
uh, who struggle to, to find a route out of homelessness or to avoid homelessness uh, in the same way. So it's, it is people who are more disadvantaged who uh, will, are more likely to end up in homeless services. What was interesting about uh, Professor Colburn's uh, presentation is when he when he did uh, research across all the European states, and obviously there's you know not everything is directly relatable, but it, it it really resonated with the experience we've had here in Ireland, in that while all those individual experiences as he called them would precipitate uh, homelessness, so an individual crisis, uh, when you look at the at the very macro level, really what it's about is if there isn't a supply of secure, affordable accommodation then you're going to see increased levels of homelessness. And that rule has held uh, across all the states that he looked at and across all the cities that he looked at. OK, well, Wayne, can I just can I just ask you what the definition of homelessness is in Ireland at the moment? So, the, as you know, we, we see monthly figures coming out. So the latest figure showed 12,000, over 12,800 people uh, in homeless emergency accommodation. So that's the way we the, the monthly figure that we calculate at the moment, which is the number of people in an emergency uh, bed uh, place uh, supported by the local authority. Okay, and then is it possible to uh, to then find out what the figure of actual people who are sleeping on the street is? Where is that figure, or do we know? Uh, we don't have a precise figure for that. That that is the, the number of local authorities perform uh, rough sleeper counts on a on a quarterly uh, basis. So we know uh, the, esti- the 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 estimation is somewhere around two hundred people uh, across the state. But the, that, that's very much an estimate. Okay. Very much a, now, the minimum number. Those two hundred people. Let's just say, give or take, however many either side of that. Is there sufficient accommodation for them to be housed off the streets? Or do they go to the street by choice because some people do, others have no other choice but to sleep on the street. But I just want to try and understand, have we got a bed for people who are living on the streets? Uh, I think if as we go local authority by local authority, I think uh, every local authority would say that there is capacity in the system that if, they, if the person wants to come in, they can come in and they will provide a bed. There are times when that just isn't the case. Uh, but in the, in the main... Uh, it, it is. I think where the difficulty arises is some people uh, have a crisis, a crisis perhaps of mental health, and there's a there's a process of engagement that needs to happen to support people uh, to come in. Uh, there are some people who are you know far outside the system, um, and you know it uh, it takes a while to to build up their confidence to get them in. Okay, just ahead of and time's running out of me on this, uh, Wayne. But uh, getting ahead of Budget Twenty Four, you've made submissions, as have so many other organisations dealing with homelessness uh, and those on the margins in society. Have are you getting the sense of any form of you know optimism coming from the government? Or are you just getting pushback all the time? I think uh, what what is clear is there's been a, a high level of engagement, uh, particularly from the Minister for Housing um, and uh, also from the government, but particularly from the Minister for Housing. I think what we we are certain of is that the government is very clear on what needs to happen if we are to uh, drive down the number of people experiencing homelessness. And that is, it's three-pronged. It's to support more prevention, 
because as difficult as the housing market is, there is still work going on on the front line of the homeless crisis and people are being diverted from homelessness or supported to stay in their current accommodation. We need to increase the capacity for homeless services to to, uh, provide support to people who've had that trauma of experiencing homelessness to make sure that they're, you know, they're supported to move on when they can. And ultimately, and that very much was a a clarion call from our conference yesterday, is we need more secure, supported, uh, affordable homes so that people don't experience homelessness in the first place and have that option to move out of homelessness. Let me ask you, nobody wants to see homelessness, but we have to expect there, there will always be some level of homelessness. What is the best that we can hope to achieve in Ireland when it comes to homeless figures? Well, I, I suppose the, the, where we look to often is Finland because uh, they've had the most successful programme. And if they counted... Ho- so the, the, one of the issues we have always is that, you know, people count uh, homelessness differently. You know, if you think back to our opening conversation there. Um, but if, if if you say, if you were to go to the, uh, the capital of Finland, Helsinki, and count the number of people who were homeless in the way that we count, they would have 54 people. Because they have, and now they have built that up over time, but they've made sure, they've looked at their housing list, they've looked at their data, and they've said, okay, we need to be able to provide so many homes to ensure that we can prevent homelessness. And that's what they've done. And they've built up to it over time, but they've been enormously okay. successful. So we can get to a situation where homelessness is rare, when it does happen, if somebody has that crisis and it occurs, that we can quickly move people on from homelessness and we can get those numbers down into the hundreds as opposed okay. to the tens of thousands and tens of thousands. There we leave it there. Executive Director Wayne Stanley of the Simon Communities, thank you for joining us. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. 086 658 email michael at lmfm.ie if you want to contact the programme. Thousands of health and community workers are going on strike next month. The Irish Congress of Trade Unions, which represents those employed in community and voluntary sector agencies, largely funded by the HSC, say the indefinite strike action will be begin on Tuesday, October 17th. It centres around years of pay disparity and follows the breakdown in talks at the WRC in July. Joining us this morning is Damien Ginley, National Support Sector Organiser with SIP2's Health Division. Damien, thanks for taking our call. Perhaps you will just give us the abridged history of this particular dispute and where its roots lie. Uh, thanks, Alan. Yeah, and good morning to your listeners. So, um, the Section 39 organisations provide vital services on behalf of some of the most vulnerable in our community. Um, and they're funded by the government as the government has more or less outsourced the services to these organisations. So in the past, there was a direct pay relationship between the public service and the rates of pay of our members in the Section 39 organisations. However, as a result of the recession, the government have tried to remove themselves from funding the um, organisations to enable them pay comparable rates with the public service. And as a result, we now have a situation where our members in, in these organisations are on average being paid between 10 and 15% less than their colleagues in the public service for doing like-for-like work. And the challenge uh, at the moment for that is Organisations are saying they're unable to recruit new staff and they're unable to retain existing staff Mm. as a result of the pay difference and the failure of the government to fund the sector correctly. So it's come to a head now where um, we have a situation where in the recent talks process, the government were unable to um, put in place a position whereby they could commit to reinstate the funding model that was agreed 
that allowed for the pay to be maintained. And as a result, our members are saying okay. enough is enough. And obviously, um, the action on the 17th has been called. Let me ask you then, at the point where the HSE decided to, <coughs> excuse me, uncouple these um, organisations from their auspices, as it were, but they still nonetheless funded them, what were the unions doing back then to prevent this? Okay, well, uh, I suppose there's, a, there's a, a long history, but um, as, as you've asked for the bridge version, in 2008, um, our workers in this sector were paid in, in line with those colleagues in the public service. The government, as, as your listeners will remember, um, enforced a massive uh, wealth of stealth measures across the sector in response to the recession. Uh, funding was significantly reduced on these organisations and our members, to try and maintain that link, um, took on board the cuts that applied in the public service. So over the last number of years, we've been engaging in different processes under the auspices of the Workplace Relations Commission to ensure that link is, is maintained. And, and the last forum um, where there was movement on it was in 2018, 2019, where our members in this sector got some of those cuts restored in their pay, maintaining that link, albeit their pay is still mm-hmm. significantly behind those in the public service. What do you say to the view and it will be put forward, and I've no doubt people are thinking it, that it's reckless behaviour on the part of the unions, considering the number of organisations that are going to be impacted by this indefinite strike, should it go ahead? Um, I don't think that's a view that's actually shared by, um, one, the organisations, because they see the... the Well, maybe not now, but if it goes on indefinitely, there will be uh, serious consequences for individuals who rely on these organisations. Um, there's going to be an impact, obviously, if this goes ahead, but uh, we have given three weeks' notice on the basis that we're calling on the government to engage, to try and avert any action that takes place. But um, I think it's worth noting that today's family... Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online you'll experience the all-new Cerebral Way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Representative bodies um, have, have been overwhelmingly in support of the workers within the sector because they see the impact on the service and the crisis that's there at the moment whereby services cannot be provided fully because there's a retention crisis in relation to staffing, where day service activities have to be pulled because there's not enough staff to provide the services, and equally where respite services have to be pulled on occasion, again because of the staffing challenges. So, you know, uh, whilst we understand the, the, the stress and the impact any action will have on 
on clients and family members, you know, there is time for the government to come to the table to find the solution to address this issue. And perhaps it could be viewed that the use of the word indefinite strike action is a mote of language, sabre rattling on your part, just to get people to the negotiating table, albeit you've been there and walked away without any resolution. So are you absolutely entrenched and not for budging on that particular term, indefinite? Um, our members voted overwhelmingly in favour of, of indefinite strike action on, on the basis of this time last year. We engaged in a one-day stoppage uh, in a number of sites across the state. Um, following that one-day stoppage, there was significant commentary from senior government officials that uh, resolutions need to be found and have to be found. But the, the process that was undertaken since uh, late last year, where there was a dodge and delay tactic by the government departments, um, has, has given our workers and our members no option but to, to you know, bring this to a head and, and deal with it. Um, I, I know the reference obviously is made to indefinite industrial action, but as part of any process, we will be engaging with the organisations to ensure emergency cover and contingency planning is put in place because this dispute is not with the service user, this dispute is not with the client, but the government have, have, have given us no alternative in lack in light of the lack of funding that they continue to provide to this sector. Okay, Damien, how much money are we talking about in total in order to get to where you need to get? Um, In in the overall scale of the health budget, the the figures is very small. Um, It's hard to put an actual figure on it due to the number of organisations. Okay, well, give me a ballpark. You you must have a rough idea what it is. Um, It's it's hard to look. I I, I can't put a ballpark figure on it on the context of... Well, it's not a good negotiating position to be in not knowing how much is actually required when you go to the table. No, no, but uh, hold on a second. I don't think that's fair. In in the context of of the pay, the difference is on average between 10 and 15%. Um, We estimate, you know, to to resolve some of this, you're talking in the region of 15 to 20 million uh, as an outset. But um, there is a requirement for the government to ensure that with successor public sector talks that, you know, we're not in this space again in 6, 12 months, 18 months' time. So okay. there needs to be a funding model put in place, which we can't obviously um, factor, you know, from a, um, a cost at this stage. But um, the, the sum is not massive in, in the overall context. But and, and you, the reason I ask you the question, Damien, is because of what is coming out from the Department of Health in terms of the budget negotiations, that we have a minister who has overspent in the department by a billion and that hole has to be plugged and the likelihood of any other available funding being around or under the mattress. It's just not there because we have to fund that one billion and we also have to fund further uh, monies to the department, which Stephen Donnelly is looking for. So you're way at the back of the queue here. Well, I, 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 don't, I don't accept we're way at the back of the queue because the services our members provide, and I, I don't think the family members would feel that they're back of the queue either because these are critical and vital services that are required and it's already been established in some parts of the country that some of these organisations due to the recruitment and retention challenges that are in place are are unable to provide services which result in the HSE having to take the services back and they're they're using staff that are paid on the HSE rates then to provide the service. So the cost will have to be borne by the state in any event. We can't leave some of the most vulnerable in our society at risk of not being available to get services that are critical because of cost. The government have a duty and an obligation to ensure that, that this matter is addressed. You know? So since the breakdown of those talks at the WRC during the summer, what engagement, if any, have you had around um, your, your dispute with government? 
we, we have we have corresponded with the relevant ministers seeking direct engagement as a result of the breakdown of talks, but we haven't got any offer of, of engagement at this stage. Um, we obviously concentrated in our efforts um, in consultation with our membership across the country, which has led to obviously the ballots and then the result of those ballots. And we have written again through the Irish Congress of Trade Unions to the minister to seek um, urgent engagement by the relevant departments under the auspices of the WRC to try and find a resolution to this matter. And why so do we, those... we are available and remain okay. available. Yeah. Why do those negotiations uh, break down at the WRC? What was the sticking point? Uh, they broke down because there was a failure on the government side to put in place a funded model that would address this issue. Um, there was a, a proposal in the 12th hour, I wouldn't even say the 11th hour, the 12th hour after almost a year of negotiations which um, provided for a small pay um, movement um, for, for some workers, but due to the gap that's in place and due to the, the feedback we're getting from our membership, it, it wasn't something that was um, uh, going to resolve this matter and the recruitment and retention challenges were just going to get worse. And, and it's evident that members are voting with their feet. They're leaving these organisations to take up employment in direct HSE um, organisations where they're doing like-for-like like work but on 10-15% more income per week, you know. Okay, so that's where the gap is, 10 or 15%? Is that, yeah, that it g- depends on the grade you're in. Okay, grade, yeah. so how how far were uh, the government prepared to bridge that gap? Are we talking 1 or 2%? No, no, uh, there was a proposal of, of between 3 and 5% being offered um, that would have been implemented originally in 2024 but then at the last minute was, was being reinstated into 2023. But But when you're talking a gap and no commitment to put in place the funding model, then that wasn't something our members were, were uh, willing to um, explore. And what will it take to get you back to the table to get the strike action called off? Uh, well, we, we remain obviously available to engage, but it's important that if the government wish to engage, that they come with a real proposal which addresses the funding model challenge within the sector because it, it, it has to be restated that the government funded the sector on the basis that enough funding was provided to ensure that the pay rates mirrored that in the public service, that there was a direct link in page, um, but they've reneged on that and there needs to be a commitment to reinstate that as part of any discussion. And then obviously, uh, if, if that is forthcoming, that the, the appropriate pay adjustments take place to stop the hemorrhaging of staff from the sector. Okay, uh, just before I let you go, Damien, it's early doors. This announcement was made yesterday. Um, it has piqued, presumably, the interest government, particularly in terms of what's going on in industrial relations and other sectors. Have you heard anything from them? Um, I, I understand there was a, a, um, a press release by the Department of Health yesterday just trying to outline their side of the story. But yeah, I, no, I saw um, that, but I'm talking yeah, about in back no, cha- any um, back no channel... There's been no direct engagement or request for engagement as of yet. Okay. Damien McGinley, National Support Sector Organiser with SIP2's Health Division. Thank you for joining us. Before we take a break, there's a lot of comments I want to get through. I think it's important that we get through them because you've taken the time to actually put pen to paper. And a lot of them centre on the conversation we had at the top of the programme around crime, antisocial behaviour. Um, Dave says fair play to Stephen for coming on the show this morning and talking about his own experience it can't have been easy uh, to do he's right in what he says people being sick and tired of seeing these young lads getting away with this behaviour and not seeing any repercussions for their actions 
Claren Meads asks, why can't the Gardaí just admit that they are current, there are currently huge problems with Gardaí numbers in the country at the minute? They cannot deal with the workload they are facing on a daily basis and the recruitment numbers are falling constantly. Claire says it's time for the government to hold their hands up, admit the difficulties and call in the army to help tackle the problems and return law and order. Paul says the Minister was given an extra £10 million to help with issues within the Gardaí. So how did she spend that? Because it doesn't seem to have resulted in more boots on the beat. Anne agrees with Stephen's comments earlier on the show. Parenting plays a huge part in all of this. Some parents don't even know where their kids are or what they're up to. And it's this kind of lazy parenting that needs uh, to problems further down the line. John says he's sick of hearing people say that there's nothing for young people to do, as if that excuses their bad or antisocial behaviour. We were growing up in the 60s, 70s and 80s. There was nothing to do either, but we still managed to have respect for other people and their property. People claiming that young people are acting this way because they are bored or have nothing to do is a complete cop-out. And finally, Sheila says, harsher punishments need to be handed down to those found guilty of criminal or antisocial behaviour in local communities. We need to come down hard on these people who seem to think they have a right to abuse and terrorise people in their homes and communities. Government need to step up and send out a clear message to those thugs that their behaviour will not be tolerated and that they will face the full force of the law when caught. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, Cabinet will be warned this morning of expected high levels of COVID-19 spread in the coming months. Health Minister Stephen Donnelly will tell colleagues the HSE believes COVID, flu and RSV can have significant levels of circulation through the autumn and winter. A vaccine programme for COVID-19 and flu will start in the first week of October, free of charge for some people. Ireland has also secured a supply of new adapted Pfizer vaccine, which will be used as boosters for those eligible. Well, Dr. Maurice Scully, GP with the Abbey House Medical Centre in Navin joins us. Uh, Doctor, thanks for taking our call this morning. Is this scare tactics on the part of, of the Minister? Are we really facing into what could potentially be a difficult winter from a health perspective? Oh, morning, Alan. Um, yes, I don't think the Minister is using scare tactics at all. We had a difficult winter last winter with um, you know high circulating levels of flu, COVID and RSV, as you said. Um, and I think we're in for another one. And I think possibly it even could be a little worse because any of the patients I've spoken to about getting another COVID booster have been sort of, you know, a little bit less than enthusiastic, to put it mildly. So um, the, the vaccine campaign is due to kick off next week. But it'll be interesting to see how many people take it up um, because uh, from what I'm seeing, people have really sort of lost interest in COVID. They don't want to think about it. They don't want to do antigen testing. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them don't want to get more boosters. It's what I called COVID fatigue has set yeah. in and has been there for a long time. Mm-hmm. And I just wonder, is there an appetite amongst what I would call those who need to be swayed to get vaccinated again? I mean, OK, I'll be absolutely honest with you. I've had every vaccine under the sun mm-hmm. for COVID. Be doing the yeah. good thing as the good citizen, putting on the green jersey. But I say to myself, is this what I have to go through every year for the rest of my life now? Is that the reality? Well, it's, it's, it, it, unfortunately, I think it probably is because it's going to be like the flu vaccine, um, you know, there'll be, you know, people at risk get that every year. So why is COVID going to be any different? I don't think it's going to be any different. It's still circulating and we're, what, three and a half years now into it and it's still going around. Um, Even in my own staff, 
uh, we've had about eight members of our staff have had COVID in the last couple of months. And, and how? And, and what? What has it mutated to an extent that we're on top of it, or is it a running away from us? Are we keeping up the vaccines with its mutation? Um, well, the new vaccine that's coming in is an adapted Pfizer vaccine, which is supposed to be better at protecting against the newer variations. So, you know, the vaccines are trying to keep up with the, you know, changes and mutations. So um, we shall have to see how this winter progresses. But, um, you know, for all the people generally are good about getting the flu vaccine, um, I'm a little bit concerned that there isn't going to be the same momentum about getting a COVID booster vaccine. And I would really strongly encourage people to try and think about getting it because, There's an awful lot of it about even at the moment. And this is like just coming out the tail end of the summertime. We shouldn't be seeing that this many respiratory viruses. And like I said, in the last two months, eight of my staff have had COVID, Um, you know, and it's 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 not it's not it hasn't been terribly serious for a lot of them, but it's unpleasant enough. You know, it's not. And, and you know, cold. I think as well that we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that whilst we may be hale and hearty and we may get over a bad uh, bout of COVID, COVID, there are those in the red mm. zone, as I call it, the elderly, those with underlying conditions, which will always be at higher risk. And then therefore, there is a responsibility and an onus on us in order to get that vaccine so we don't spread it. Yes, as you say, it's, you know, probably the people who are highest risk will get it. But um, it's still, the vaccine, as we now know, doesn't stop you from getting COVID. It can certainly reduce the severity and hopefully prevent hospitalizations. But it doesn't um, necessarily stop you from actually getting COVID. And there will always be, will be the people who are going to get it more severely with or without getting the vaccine. And we need to have, you know, population immunity to, uh, against COVID. It's all very well sending the elderly and you know, people with respiratory illnesses like uh, COPD to get it. But we need to be protecting them by getting our, it ourselves and getting, um, you know, even, you know, younger people getting it. So COVID has now been recommended for anybody with under, any underlying health condition and anybody over 50. So that's a good swathe of the population. Um, I'm sure you're probably aware that in the United Nations last week we had uh, part of that week's discussion around what's coming down the track next in terms of a threat, a medical threat. We had COVID and I think the consensus was it's not if, it's a question of when. Is, is Are they mm. getting into scare tactics or is that your professional opinion of what's going to happen next? Well, we've had, we've just lived through one pandemic and before that, we had a little bit of uh, an epidemic in the, the swine flu, if you remember that, a few years ago. So, you know, these viruses are just mutating all the time. And yes, it is a threat to us. Now, hopefully, it'll be a long time before we see the next one. Um, if you remember back, there was a SARS scare way back in about 2002 and we thought this was going to be the pandemic and it didn't really fizzled out itself but um you know we we certainly don't want to see another pandemic like the one we've just come through and it's still not finished yet so Mm. yeah just for those individuals who are a little bit hesitant about going and getting uh, the injection it's straightforward Mm. enough there's little or no side effects now there was in the beginning the odd headache a little bit of lethargy and maybe a little bit of illness but they're they're minor 
Yeah, they are minor for the vast, vast majority of people. You might have a sore arm, you might feel a bit fluey or have a temperature for a day or two after it. But the vast majority of people will have no problem with it whatsoever. Um, I do worry, though, if you ever look on social media, the amount of negative uh, publicity and people talking about adverse effects of the vaccine. You know, it's it's seeping into the consciousness of people that these vaccines are, you know, potentially scary things, but they are not. Um, if you remember when COVID started first, the number of people coming into our hospitals and the number of deaths before we had the vaccines. So the vaccines have worked. They have stopped people from getting as sick. They have reduced hospitalizations and reduced the numbers of deaths. They work. So the advice is forget about social media. These are not qualified individuals who work as medical practitioners, although some of them are and are spreading a certain mm-hmm. narrative, which is just completely out yeah. there. Go and see your own medical practitioner. Get the advice and get the injection yeah. if you can. Yes, absolutely, Alan. And is it handy enough to do, make an appointment, oh, yeah. or we have chemists still giving out the injections the chemist, to a certain yeah, age cohort? The pharmacists are doing it um, for both flu. Um, I'm not sure if they're doing COVID, but they're certainly doing flu uh, vaccines. And um, we'll all be, ro- you know, sort of roping our staff together to get COVID vaccines out there to anybody that wants it. It will not be a problem to get it. Very good. Dr. Marie Scully, GP with the Abbey House Medical Centre in Navan. Thank you for joining us. Michael Reed on LMFM. Welcome back to the programme as temperatures drop and households start to think about home heating. Friends of the Earth and Social Justice Ireland are calling on the government ahead of Budget 24 to take action so households are not left to choose between heating and eating again this winter. In a pre-budget statement, 32 leading social, environmental and voluntary organisations have called for targeted government intervention to address energy poverty and continued reliance on polluting fossil fuels. Well, joining us this morning is Claire O'Connor, Energy Policy Officer with Friends of the Earth. Claire, thank you for joining us uh, this morning. I suppose it's probably timely that we're having this conversation when you see in the front of the Independent that one in eight homes now in arrears on their energy bills and that looks to set uh, looks set to get worse. Um, in reality, what is happening on the ground out there? Are people really faced with that prospect of having to either eat or turn the, ho- or, or turn the heat off or vice versa? Yeah, I think I think we're really facing into the same situation as we were in last winter. Again, we see energy prices are still extortionately high. Um, the temperature is starting to drop now. So we're starting to think about turning on our, our radiators. But for a lot of people, and it's people who are struggling in other ways, it's really, really difficult now decision that they're kind of faced with, you know, and they're ultimately not in a position to be able to, to keep their homes warm enough. So we've come together with Social Justice Ireland and with Aid Action and with another 31 organisations across this kind of area um, to call for action in this budget that tackles both cold homes and energy bills and also tackles climate action really and mm-hmm. stays aligned with, it, with our carbon budgets. And ultimately that will look at increasing fuel allowance uh, and expanding eligibility to include people who are on the working family payment. So that's really single parents and Children in those households are particularly vulnerable to, to fuel poverty and that has a lot of health implications and actually reduces their, their levels of attendance at school. So, And I know that Taoiseach is really keen in, the, in this budget in particular to address child poverty. And I think doing this by expanding fuel allowance, by giving more families support 
with their energy bills um, is, a, is one way they can do that. Okay, well, let's perhaps, really- let's perhaps deal with that first because there are many uh, facets to this given the number of organisations that are involved in this campaign. So let's deal with more immediate intervention that the government can provide in this mm-hmm. budget and that is some form of fuel allowance. We can more or less take it. It's not going to be as it was last year. There'll be one one-off payment and that's about it. Do you accept that that's no. the reality? Um, I think ultimately the value of the fuel allowance has decreased because the, the fuel allowance rates actually didn't go up at all last year despite the despite the rises in the energy bill. So the actual value of the fuel allowance this year is significantly lower than it's ever been really. Um, and we ultimately think that these kind of lump sum payments aren't really addressing the, the root causes of, of the issue and they ultimately just kind of put a plaster over the mm. issue which is why we don't want to see we probably will see more universal energy credits and I know the government have alluded to that but we really need to see those targeted interventions for people on the fuel allowance but also expanding that fuel allowance the more people can get it. And then if you look kind of more into the long term you have kind of the more urgent things such as the fuel allowance that need to be done in this budget before next winter but we also need to look long term. Ultimately we need to get all of our homes off, off fossil fuels and to insulate our homes and we, I think we need to prioritise people who are in the most precarious situation older people people with disabilities and those children in, in, low, in low-income households for retrofitting. And if you expand the eligibility for the fuel allowance, that actually brings them into the fully funded government yeah. retrofitting scheme as well. You, so you, that, you that, talked, that is a win for yeah. home, house quality and for bringing down emissions as well. Yeah, you talked about long-term. We don't do long-term in this country. All you have to do is look at our 2030 targets. They're not going to be reached. There's a lot of aspiration there, very little action and very little delivery. Yeah, we fully, we fully, fully agree with that. And I think their government really needs to pull their socks up in terms of if they're actually serious about having emissions by 2030 and then long term looking at 2050 also getting to, to, to zero emissions, really. And I think we need to, they need to face the fact that we're in this, this energy crisis and action like retrofitting people on the low, the homes of people on the lowest incomes, it would be uh, an immediate help for those people, but it would also be that long term impact for the emissions and for climate, and it makes so much sense. Another thing we're calling for is also to retrofit all social housing by 2030. At the moment, the government are planning on retrofitting half a million homes by 2030, but only 36,000 of those are social housing units. So it's only a quarter of the the social housing stock, really, they're planning on retrofitting by 2030. We think the government needs to be much more proactive in this and to actually themselves say, this is the, gov- the state-owned housing stock, we're going to retrofit all of this and take a real mm-hmm. leading, proactive role in, in doing that. Do you accept that there is perhaps a delicate balancing act on the part of the government when you consider this requires a healthy degree of buy-in from the public and the public are getting a little bit weary having to foot the bill uh, as a result of climate initiatives which are being introduced particularly by the Green Party? Is that a fair assessment? Um... I, I think for something like retrofitting and insulation, that ultimately, if you're a homeowner, will increase the value of your home, also bring down your bills and bring down your emissions. I think that's kind of a win for everyone. We totally agree, but it comes at a cost, albeit that the government are going to give you some sort of financial subvention towards it. It's still coming out of your pocket, ultimately. It's another cost, just like we have to pay the costs on fuels, just like we have to pay the cost on everything else that's required in, all, in order to bring us to our emission targets. It's becoming weary, do you not think? Yeah, I th- and I think that's why we're calling for really fast and fair climate action. And it's really important that this energy transition is fair. 
and the people aren't feeling disillusioned by it really and there aren't people being more marginalised and feeling left behind in it which is why we think we need to take a furthest behind first approach to, to target those people really who are struggling the most and could be the most impacted and could be left behind in all of this and to make sure that they're really prioritised in any of this energy transition. Yeah. You are at the coalface of this, as it were, probably the wrong term to use, but nonetheless, you are aware of the level of engagement and interest and buy-in from the public. Are we considered to be a nation of green, green people? I think we probably have a way to go in becoming a, a green people or a, a, a green nation, as you want. Um, but I think I think people want to do something. I think the vast majority of people understand that this is a crisis and they really want to be a part of that crisis. And I think the challenge for the government is how can they bring people along and how can they make it more accessible to people and how can they I suppose, show people the, the benefits of getting involved are we, beca- are, we, are, yeah. Yeah, are we becoming immune when we're listening to so many of the harbingers of gloom and doom talking about climate crisis, it's the end of the world, the sky's falling in? Is there a certain sense of immunity setting in there? Yeah, it's a good question. I'd say for some people there probably is. You might have reached your limit of, of hearing those types of stories. But it's un- it's unfortunate that it is the reality of the situation that we're in and maybe that messaging isn't landing for a lot of people so maybe it's that we need to look at like what are the benefits for us and for our communities and ultimately it will be less polluted air we love healthier air um we love healthier homes as well if we do start to invest in retrofitting and ultimately we we'll be healthier ourselves as well so i think if there's that health and also if we can if we can insulate and we can use less energy we're going to we're we're going to have lower energy bills and we're going to we're going to spend less money on energy as well so there are a lot of benefits and i think sometimes yeah it can definitely be overwhelming here in that that the world is is ending and you might just want to turn away from that ultimately but i think there are benefits from from taking action in this as well okay claire just can i ask you finally um are friends of the earth disappointed at the progress being made and disappointed at the government's level of action around uh, there's so many issues that are being put before them in in budget 24 um well we haven't seen budget 2024 yet but no, but you've had you a fair look, you've had a fair uh, look at what they have been doing up to this in terms of their commitment to making changes to reach those targets. Have, are you been satisfied by their progress? They've definitely made more progress than some previous governments had, but overall, they're not they're not approaching it at the level of the crisis that it is um, at the speed that they need to. And I think it needs to be a whole of government cross party effort really it can't just be be lumped on one party to try and rally the troops to to make this happen so i think it's really important that there's buy-in from every department from every party and we're really not seeing that at the moment i don't think okay. you know, it's, been, it's been much slower than we want to see Clara connor energy policy officer with friends of the earth thank you for joining us Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. Now then, welcome back to the programme. If you want to contact us, you can call us, text or WhatsApp 0861800658 or you can email michael at lmfm.ie. That time of the programme now where we go to uh, what's happening around in terms of crime in the county and beyond. We're joined by Garda Laura Martin, Dundalk Garda Station. Or thanks, uh, for joining us this morning. Let's deal with an assault first off. That happened on the Cord Road in Drogheda on the 23rd of August. 
Yeah, good morning, Alan. Gardaí are appealing for witnesses or anyone who may have information of an assault that occurred on the Card Road in Drogheda on the 23rd of August this year. The assault occurred between 5.30 hours and 5.40 hours in the morning where a male was pushed off his bike and it caused the male serious injuries. It is believed that two males got out of a vehicle, potentially a silver Volkswagen, and kicked this male while he was on the ground. One male had a dark-coloured hoodie on and a pair of shorts. If anyone was in the area at the time and observed this happen or have dashcam footage from this location between 5.30 to 5.40 hours at the Card Road in Drogheda, please contact Drogheda Garda Station on 041-987-4200 or you can also call the Garda Confidential Line which is 1800 666 111. Okay, let's go to Dunshockland then earlier in the month on the 12th of burglary there. Yeah, Garda in Dunshockland are investigating a burglary which occurred on the 12th of September this year in the Kilmore Mynalvi area of Meath, three culprits entered a house at approximately 14.30 hours and they took a number of items. Some of these items were very distinct, such as a Westmanstown golf brooch, medals, clatter rings and confirmation medals. The vehicle involved was a black Vauxhall Astra, three-door with Monaghan registered plates. The vehicle then went in the direction of Dunboyle, Summerhill Road or Mynalvi around 14.45 hours. Gardaí are appealing for any witnesses that may have dash cam between the hours of 13.30 to 15.30. We are also appealing for homeowners to check to contact Dunshockland Garda Station on 01-825-8600 or they can also contact the confidential Garda line on 1800-666-111. Now, what's the late night league all about? Yeah, so there's a late night league, Alan. It's going to be in Dalik on the 30th of September from 8pm to 10pm. It's going to be in Dalik... AFC on the Astro pitches. This is in conjunction with FAI and the community policing team in Ashburn. The soccer league is a free event and it's run for four weeks. It's open to both boys and girls aged 12 to 18 years. There's no experience required and youths can come on their own if they wish. The coaches will select the teams. Uh, Parental consent forms will be required to be signed and these will be available in shops in Dalik. Um, or they will also be available on the night. There will be male and female FAI facilitators and guardian attendance and Ashburn Community Policing Team wish to extend their sincerest gratitude to the team at Delique, AFC and the FAI Meath De- Development Officer, Graham Keane, for facilitating this community initiative. Now, you want to say a word of thanks to those who attended the Laytown races recently. Yes, Gardaí, um were very thankful for the members of the public who attended Laytown races and they hope they enjoyed their day out. Gardaí appreciate the cooperation by the people that attended and the traffic and the overall behaviour, Alan, was excellent on the day. Loud Village now, Loud Garda Station? Yeah, Gardaí are opening Louth Village Garda Station as much as they can, three times a week. Uh, it has more or less been closed for over a year and they have the opening times which will be posted on the Garda Louth Facebook page. And uh, I suppose a, a word of thanks globally to everybody who yeah. has helped out. Gardaí wish to thank members of the public for their assistance with all the investigations. Please, if you do have any information in relation to any matters, you can contact the local Garda station or the confidential line. Once again, that number is 1800 666 111. Garda, Laura Martin of Dundalk Garda Station. Thank, thank you, you for Alan. joining us. Just before we let you go, um, you're probably aware of the fact that the weather has become somewhat inclement and it's going to deteriorate over the coming hours to such an extent that we have a yellow warning in place that may be updated. Not quite sure yet, but one uh, man who'll be able to tell us what the situation is is Alan O'Reilly from Carla Weather. Uh, Alan, morning, how are you? Good, thanks Alan, all good. Uh, How bad are things going to get? 
Yeah, so Storm Magnus is going to develop rapidly tonight and move up towards the southwest of Ireland and then track across Ireland through the middle of tomorrow. It's going to be quite a rough weather event. Um, you know, it's going to be wet, it's going to be windy. We still have the yellow warnings for the east and the northeast. Um, they have gone to orange for Cork and Kerry, but they're, Cork and Kerry are the only two counties that have an orange warning at the present there could still be upgraded later. You're looking at the problem really is the duration. Um, the length of the time is going to be very wet and windy for a number of hours and it's going to be through the middle of the day. So really you're looking at probably, you know, around the east, loud, mead direction from around 10 or 11 o'clock, the rain will start, the winds will really pick up and then through the middle of the day and into the afternoon, it's going to be very wet and you're looking at gusts of up to 90 kilometres an hour, possibly even heavier or stronger on the on the coast. Now, you talk about orange warning for Cork and around that particular region. When we talk about orange, what do we mean in terms of rainfall and wind gusts, Alan? Yeah, so the rainfall models show us that over 40 millimetres of rain within 24 hours is possible in parts of the southwest. Um, but generally, you're looking at more than 10 to 20 millimetres of rain from much of the country. Um, the wind warning then is really for gusts of over 90 kilometres an hour uh, for yellow and you know there will be some locally stronger gusts than that even and there is an orange marine warning which will give you an indication of the strength of the winds on the coast so especially those living near the coast should take good efforts to avoid um, I suppose coastal water uh, tomorrow afternoon and tomorrow early tomorrow evening especially up around the northeast. Why do we get so excited about these warnings? I mean, I can understand if we go into orange and red, but I mean, this is just your bog standard winter storm that comes and goes. Yeah, it gets a little bit gusty and a bit wet, but that's Irish weather for you, Alan. Yeah, well, I think the yellow warnings, to be honest with you, the frequency of them don't help things um, because we've had yellow warnings for, for a lot of different scenarios. This weather event will be more significant than most of the yellow warnings we would see due to, due to the duration and also the time of the year. Like 90 kilometre an hour gusts in the winter wouldn't be as big an issue, but you have trees still with a lot of leaf cover, um, so you are likely to see power outages. Now, as I said, the worst of it will be in the south and maybe even further down along the east coast. So there will be some severe impacts, but just not in the northeast. Um, but look, the exact track of this could shift a little bit, so people should keep up to date with the warnings as well, because they could easily change. Is it a little bit early for a storm of this magnitude to hit us, or is it the expected norm now? Um, no, we can see storms this time of the year. I mean, we were very lucky in the last storm season. We didn't see a named storm until August. Um, and then, you know, we did have two of them. But it, it's not that unusual to see storms this time of the year. Um, I think the biggest issue, to be honest with you, Alan, is the, the rainfall is coming on top of a very wet end to the summer and start to autumn. And if we continue to see heavy rainfall into autumn and to winter, I think flooding is probably going to become a bit of an issue because what, land is very saturated and water tables are very high. I know it's, you can't predict above, with any degree of accuracy, about three to five days in terms of the weather. But when we look at what has been happening historically over the past number of years, particularly in Ireland, we see, tend to see certain patterns, emerge, patterns emerging. Presumably, this was going to be one of quite a few storms of this magnitude that we can expect uh, over the winter period. Yeah, I mean, we're heading into the stormy season now. We were lucky with Storm Nigel or ex-Hurricane Nigel. It went to Iceland instead of Ireland. Um, We do have some more wet and windy weather coming through on Saturday. 
Um, Friday's a good day, though. So if you're looking maybe to do something outdoors after Storm Agnes clears, Thursday's still going to be wet and breezy and at times some rainfall. But Friday's a good day, but more wet and windy on Saturday. But high pressure is trying to build up for the start of October, um, but the Atlantic is very active and we have to wait and see. Like this, as you say, we're really heading into our storm season. We got very lucky last year, and I think we're unlikely to be as lucky this year. But hopefully, October will see a settled spell. And you know something, Alan. Finally, I look at the positive of this. The temperatures are holding up pretty well. There's been beautiful mornings out there in terms of uh, temperatures. I mean, we see temperatures hit late teens during the afternoon over the past week or so. Yeah, we've had much milder air move up from the south. That's the only good thing about when you have these storms coming. They do bring the milder air rather than colder air coming down from the north. And even tomorrow, it's still going to be up to 15 degrees. So, you know, possibly even maybe 16 or 17 degrees on Thursday. So it's good for the heating bills to keep the temperatures up. You're certainly right there because I think even at the weekend, we could see 18 degrees. So that's the one positive here, given the price of heat and oil and price of electricity. <laughs> we'll, we'll cheer the good news. All right, Alan. Thanks so much for that. That's uh, Alan O'Reilly from Carlo Weather joining us with the latest update on that storm, which is uh, going to make landfall. What day is today? Today is Tuesday. Over the next, uh, I'd say, 12 hours or thereabouts, we're going to see that hit. So it's a case of batting down the hatches because it's looking like south and east coast are going to be uh, pretty badly hit, particularly in terms of rain. And gusts. I mean, we could see gusts, as Alan has said, up to 90 miles an hour. So if you have the trampolines out there or anything, garden furniture that needs to be uh, secured down, I'd suggest you do that in the next few hours. Now, listen, before we leave you, there was quite a number of um, comments which came in in relation to our first item on crime and antisocial behaviour in uh, County Meath and its environs uh, and in County Louth as well. And Margaret asks, how come when these young thugs do harm, it's the government's fault? In fact, almost everyone else, bar the thugs, are to blame. The education system failed them and society too, etc, etc. Well, has anyone ever thought that it's these thugs who failed the education system, society and most of all themselves? And in some cases, the parents have failed them also. Young people never had as much as they do today, but they're spoilt and have a sense of entitlement. They expect everything to be handed to them. They are never satisfied and do not accept the word no. But most of all, they have no respect for anyone or anything. And that's the problem. We had reform schools when we didn't need them and now when we really need them we don't have them the age for prosecution needs to be reduced they know there are no real consequences for their actions they are laughing at Gardaí and the law and this cannot continue Margaret thinks that if these youngsters cannot be held accountable for their actions then their parents should be held accountable Jim says tougher and longer sentences are what's needed to act as a deterrent There is no fear among the youngsters who are committing these acts and that's the real problem. They have no fear of anything or anyone. If there were real repercussions for them, then they might think twice about their behaviour. Anne says it was shocking listening to Stephen and Pather this morning to hear Pather say one man's wife was threatened with sexual assault if he reported the antisocial behaviour he had experienced. What has happened to society altogether? Where is the respect for law and order? 
few more comments when I get through. Lisa agrees with a lot of what Stephen was saying on the show this morning. She would agree that most people would feel nervous or reluctant to walk around on their own in Navan Town after dark. Many of them simply don't feel safe. The Gardaí cannot handle the volume of trouble they're seeing in the town and they simply don't have the numbers to deal with it. We need more decisive action from government and the minister. They need to come down hard on these thugs and to take whatever steps necessary to restore law and order. Antisocial behaviour again, dominating every single comment that we've read out this morning. Davy says it's unfair to blame the Gardaí for the level of trouble in Navan at the minute. They simply don't have the manpower. We need action from government, bring in the army to these trouble spots and get rid of the jokers once and for all. That was a selection of the comments that we received this morning in relation to the first item on the programme. Thank you for those and thank you for taking the time to send them in. That's about it for today. We're back with you tomorrow, same time on The Michael Reid Show. But for now, for me, Alan Cantwell, good morning. The Michael Reid Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie 